So here we are with the 11th Media Curious Off Message podcast, for which I dropped in on the Dublin HQ of the National Union of Journalists, just over a week after the shooting of freelancer Lyra McKee in Derry, though, as it turned out, the day before the announcement of the probable sale of independent news and media to the Belgian Dutch Media House Group. I was there to chew the media fat with the Irish Secretary at the NUJ, Seamus Dooley, and over the next 45 odd minutes we discussed Lyra's death and any role her job as a journalist might have had on the subsequent media coverage, if it's currently possible to have genuine media ownership and diversity, the NUJ's major ongoing campaigns, fixing trust in journalism, why he thinks if you're a journalist you should really join the NUJ, and loads more. Enjoy. Seamus Dooley, Irish Secretary of the NUJ, the National Union of Journalists. Thank you for uh, agreeing to do an off-message podcast with me. Um, It's been a busy, well, a busy few weeks for you guys, and not necessarily for good reasons. No, we've just, uh, we're, we're just getting used to uh, yet another uh, murder in Northern Ireland. Uh, I can recall uh, the murder of Martin O'Hagan. I was in London. I got a phone call on a Saturday morning telling me that a journalist in Belfast had been killed. I knew Martin O'Hagan. I had an instinct. How long ago was uh, that? And that's 20 years ago. Mm. Uh, I had an instinct that it was Martin because Martin's life had been under threat. Uh, At Easter, I got a phone call at uh, five o'clock in the morning uh, to say that someone had been shot in Derry. I had no idea who it was. Uh, The name emerged after a couple of hours. I knew Lara McKee not very well, but I did know her. I certainly knew her work. And it did bring me right back to Mm. the murder of Martin O'Hagan. And while Martin was targeted in a way that Lyra wasn't, I still regard this as the murder of a journalist, uh, and it is equally horrific. And uh, if Mar- you know, there was a bit of a public debate in, initially as to whether or not the fact that she was not targeted made a difference. The reality is that the person who fired that shot meant to kill a worker. If it mm. wasn't Lyra, it was going to be someone else. Yeah, well, it was aimed at a group of people. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the reaction to it, to Lyra's death, has been phenomenal, both politically and socially. Uh, what's your reaction to that? Were you surprised? Not really. I think there are a few elements to the reaction. First of all, uh, Lyra was an extraordinarily outgoing character who had an ability to develop relationships, including relationships with people who never met her but who felt they knew her intimately uh, because, and in that sense, she's new. She's a new mm. breed of journalists. Yeah, so yeah. there are, so she knew her audience without ever meeting them. And at the funeral, uh, I met people who were meeting one another for the first time, but who were all friends united by the web that is Twitter and, and social media. And you say the web, exactly. Yeah. It is social and, media. And it is. It is social media. Mm. And uh, so she had that following. Uh, she was a very powerful writer. Uh, she had achieved success. People keep talking about her journalist with a bright future. She actually had achieved a great deal of success already. So there was that the element of the personal. There was the fact that she was a, an LGBT activist, uh, a member of a very committed group mm. of women activists in Northern Ireland who 
are flying the rainbow flag with a level of energy and passion that we haven't seen before. I think they've uh, seen what's happened south of the they border. They have seen what south ha- happens out of the border. Mm. And then there is also the the anger, I think, felt at the uh, manner of the killing uh, and a sense of frustration with the political leadership or lack mm. of political leadership in, uh, in Northern Ireland. So there's all of those elements combined. And there's Brexit. Uh, well, there is Brexit. I'm not inclined to over... Uh, emphasise Brexit mm. because I think that there is certainly a concern about Brexit and there is a real issue about the implication of Brexit for Northern Ireland for the peace process and for the peace yeah. process but even you know it, the collapse of the peace process uh, is not re- directly related to Brexit uh, there are developments afterwards which are relevant to that um, I I was sort of interested in the response to the priest and to his mm. eulogy. It was very direct. Uh, two days earlier, I had written a piece for the Washington Post, which I, where I made the same point, not as eloquently. Uh, <laughs> but I did say I, the point I made was that uh, Lyra would probably her response would be say to say what kept you. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Arlene Foster. Arlene Foster made the point that she had visited the Cregan for the first time as if this was a badge of honour. The local MP, you know, visited part of his constituency for the first time. So it is a legitimate question to ask, uh, what kept you? Uh, Did it need to take uh, uh, the death of a young woman uh, who had moved to the area Mm. uh, to provoke a reaction such as, for instance, all of the joint leaders issuing a statement? So... There, and Well, I wouldn't be churlish either. The reality is it happened. It has created an impetus. Uh, I wouldn't get too excited because already they seem to be going back into their tribal corners. But I think they won't get away with it. I think there is a mood now um, among a younger generation which is actually saying uh, that they, they genuinely want dialogue. Because remember, going back to what Lyra said, they are the children of the peace process and they don't understand the old faded flags. Do you think that there is an element of the coverage that Lyra's death got because she was a journalist and the coverage was by journalists? It's like when a cop is shot, you know, the, the, the guards, the police worldwide, they, their antenna goes up. Likewise, here was a case of one of our own, as journalists would have thought, was killed out covering a story. And they would have given it far more coverage than had it been a street cleaner, a policeman, woman, you know, any other profession. I think there's an element of that. I'm not sure that it's entirely true, but there is certainly an element among some sections of the media. I think... uh, Lyra was a young woman. Uh, she was a lesbian activist, mm. so she could have been those without being a journalist. Sure. The fact that she's but she a, was a journalist. The fact that she's a yeah. working journalist covering it certainly adds a dimension to that. I've been very careful to say that there's not a hierarchy of grief uh, and that the blood of a journalist is the same colour as everyone else. Sure, but it, I, I'm just but, wondering, but, but, would it have got the same no, coverage? It, it would have got the same coverage, but it wouldn't have got the same traction, if I can mm, make that point. I, okay. think that, I think that, for instance, it would have got the immediate coverage sure, within yes, Northern Ireland. Yes. What it would not have got, I think, is the international focus of attention. Yeah. Uh, it would not have got the, you know, Roy Greenstead had a piece in The Guardian this morning, which is very good. I don't believe he would have followed it up in the same way 
gotcha. had she not been a journalist. Uh, but I think there is always a problem in covering um, stories such as the, uh, a killing of this nature that it is determined by the personality of the individual involved. And this was not just an ordinary journalist, this was an extraordinary journalist. This mm. is someone who is, who is interesting for a number of reasons. She's interesting because she was relatively unknown in the mainstream media. And many well-known journalists in Ireland, uh, particularly south of the border, would have said, Lyra, who? But she was known to a new, younger generation. Mm. She was known to the social media generation. Uh, and she was also known in the arts community. She was known for her creative writing. Mm. She'd done a two-book uh, two deal with Faber and Faber. So she had that kind of, there were, you know, she had that... A lot of strings to her bow. A lot of strings yeah. to her bow. And the other point, I think, is that Derry is special. Uh, when something like this happens in Derry, uh, there is a very different reaction. The reaction as well, the publicity was, I think, obviously the fact that she was a journalist, circumstances of the killing, but also the reaction of the women of Derry. That, mm. you know, that powerful symbol of going to the, to the bully boys and putting their door, their hands on the door, the and paint. very powerfully, red, yeah, the red hand. Yeah, Remember, yeah. this is the red hand of yeah, Ulster. But yeah. this is these are nationalists they're confronting with the red hand. And what was also interesting was that there were a group of bully boys who looked like bouncers at a bad nightclub, but these women were not intimidated by them. And at the funeral... Um, which I attended, I was very impressed by the spirit of those women. And in some respects, it's a more robust working class response mm. than we had, for instance, on the part of the peace people or the, uh, or the women's coalition. Uh, and I think that these activists are, are not going to go away. We're uh, on May Day. Uh, I'll be speaking at the May Day rally uh, in Belfast. And I know that we'll all, there are plans for some of those people to, to walk with their rainbow flags and May Day. And I've no doubt that at Belfast Pride, there will also be a stand. Mm. So I don't think that, that this, even even though she was killed because she was a worker, many of the values that she stood for are going to be a reminder of her life. What mm. Some of the issues that she wrote about, she wrote about suicide, she wrote about mental health. These are subjects which were pretty much ignored by mainstream media for a lot of the time. And she did it in a very powerful way. She talked about the missing boys. Uh, so all of those are, are elements of her life which make her, for want of a better term, a more interesting mm. uh, person. But that's also important to say that every life is uh, important. Had that been a police officer, there would have been some other family grieving. There would have been a different kind of funeral, but it would be no less sad. Mm. But would it have got the same coverage? Who knows? I mean, we're we're in, we're in speculation uh, well, I think, territory. I, I think would it have had the coverage had the same impact? Uh, I think that had there been a police officer killed by a seventeen or eighteen year old in those circumstances, it would certainly have got mm. significant amount of coverage. Mm. Unfortunately, had it been some other kind of civilian, maybe not. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's been a week where a couple of weeks where your attention has been focused on that I imagine but you have the mundane the everyday stuff of the NUJ to deal with that never goes away so your job on a daily on a weekly basis involves what well for I suppose it's multifaceted uh, and the um, NUJ uh, is an industrial union the same as any other trade union so the the issues, the industrial issues that we would currently be dealing with, for instance, are the issue of bogus self-employment. That's a big issue in RTE. It's a big issue in other companies where 
freelance workers are denied the social protections uh, afforded to people who are employees. So it's not freelance. It's not. It's 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 not freelancers who are trying to shy away from being part of the uh, these organisations. It's the organisations. It's, it's organisations. Uh, organisations telling people that if you want to work for us. You must regard your. You must register as self-employed. No matter how no many matter hours how, a week well, or a month he, or a year, there are statutory entitlements called, and these criteria are, uh, you know, working uh, for an organisation, uh, working under the control and direction. You can't profit from the enterprise. You can't subcontract your work to someone else. Uh, if you get up in the morning, you can't decide. Well, I used to work for drive time, but this morning I fancy going into Matt Cooper. Uh, you don't have that kind of freedom. And yes. uh, and it is an issue, and RTE have admitted it is an issue. It's it's a complex. There was a big issue. report done. Uh, there that. was a report yeah. done called the Eversheds mm. report. So that's that's clearly taking up a lot of time. And it would be wrong to suggest that it's only a problem in in RTE. What's interesting is that for many years the issue of bogus self-employment was looked upon as being an issue in the construction industry, mm. and the trade union mar- uh, movement was very conscious of that. Um, and in fact, even if you look at one of the issues that people tend to neglect uh, at the moment is the issue of bogus self-employment and how it impacts on tendering prices. So, for instance, in the Children's Hospital at the moment, very controversial, there is no doubt that the original price in relation to that would have been based on labour costs. But the labour costs are significantly less because the labour costs involving a project like that are usually on the basis of people uh, being employed uh, or engaged as self-employed, so there's a loss. Yeah. Subcontractors, yeah. but there's a loss to the taxpayer of mm. revenue in relation to that. And the same applies to the public service broadcaster. So it's not a victimless crime, mm. and and so that's one of the issues. And we have only this week, I've uh, within the last week, I've read the outcome of an individual who took a case uh, with a company who were engaged her, insisted that she was a freelancer covering a particular uh, beat. Uh, she, on her own, without even coming to us, she'd already got her advice, took a case to the Department of Social Protection and won and will get a significant amount of back money uh, on the basis of her status having been incorrect. So her employer had forced her to be self-employed, but she actually is now deemed by the Department of Social Protection to be an employee. That's a... A that's really, a huge, yeah. That, that's a big issue. And do you have to take those on a case by case basis, or do you group negotiate? Like a, a union generally goes in well, negotiating on behalf you, of all its members. Well, you you negotiate on behalf of all its members, but in the, and something like bogus self employment, you really do have to go on an individual case basis, and which takes one, forever. And one of the ironies of the current pressure on trade unions is that. Uh, we have insisted over the years on greater legal protections, mm. but with la- la- greater legal protections in many cases comes a greater emphasis on individual rights. So you end up taking individual cases to what's now called the Adjudication Service of the Workplace Relations okay. Commission. Uh, and and that does take up a lot of time. The other issues at the moment, of course, are independent news and media are enforcing redundancies. Uh, and there is a real concern about the future of INM. It's currently for sale. There is also the ongoing investigation into the um, surveillance of staff and how you know we are awaiting reports on that. But there is a genuine concern on the part of many mm. journalists. Uh, 
And then, of course, the issue of media ownership and media control is a, an overarching concern. And for many years, I've been making a kind of single transferable speech about the important, the need for uh, a commission on the future of media in Ireland because uh, we get occasional speeches about you know, bogus self-employment addressing that or ownership or diversity. What we really need is a, you know, some form of all-embracing uh, review of the industry which looks at everything from employment standards to access to training. Mm. It's still a very male, white-dominated industry the only black workers you will find in most media organisations are either cleaners or security workers. Yeah. Uh, we haven't had uh, any take-up in the industry in relation to travellers, for instance. So their their voice is, is not uh, seen or heard. Uh, and one of the issues, I think, that, that struck me about Lyra McKee was that she left Queen's University. She found that a hostile environment as a working-class uh, woman. She found the... Uh, a, a degree of homophobia as well. Mm. Uh, she later went back and did a master's through distant learning part time, uh, and was able to undertake her caring responsibilities as well. So one of the issues around education and training that I would be saying is, if we need working class voices on radio and television and in print and in digital, we need to look at the education model. And it may be that what we provide uh, in DCU, DIT, mm. Limerick or Galway is not enough. If they're not coming so, through the ranks, uh, yeah, the educational yeah, ranks. Then, then we need we need yeah. some other. So that whole issue of access. The problem we have as a union is it's very hard to, to deal with those sort of almost philosophical issues while simultaneously trying to put out so many fires. And my colleague in the office, Ian McGuinness, equally is dealing with a wide range of issues north and south and particularly in the regional newspaper sector hmm. oh, there's a lot to, to where to start on all of those I mean the big one and uh, I'm glad you brought it up because I was going to bring it up um, and I'm going to shoot that dog that's barking mm -hmm. away in the background too but hey there you go an occasional train rumbles <laughs> yes. by uh, your office it's a working office um, media, media ownership and control Um how does one long term look at genuine diversity in media ownership and control? Um, because even if if one person owns a big chunk or 10 people own smaller chunks, they're all members of the same club. They all they all go to the same places and they're all from the same. Back. They're all wealthy, as you said, mostly mostly white mostly men and they all think the same and their bottom line is the same as is keeping the advertisers sweet and you know that so how does one get genuine diversity in the yeah. media i i don't think it's that uh, it, it's clearly not simple uh, i do think that the operation of a trust makes a difference and i think that the irish times for instance as it's trust is well placed uh, to uh, offer some uh, level of diversity, not as much as they could, but they don't meet the same demands. Uh, but they still have to answer to advertisers to, uh, yeah, to a well, huge degree. You yes, and I think uh, I I think that when you are depending on advertising, clearly that is a problem. Uh, we we have always, and that's why I'm saying that there's a need for a commission. Um, if I if I had all the answers, I wouldn't need a commission. But I think there are a number of issues that can be done. I think that, uh, like I actually do uh, favour tax incentives for uh, 
for public interest journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm actually a defender of the license fee. I think public service broadcasting does have an important role. And in the same way, there is no reason why there should not be an incentive for public service uh, journalism mm. in print and digital. Uh, that could be by way of tax incentive. It could be by way of training grants. And I think that in the new dispensation, there is no reason why freelance journalists, digital jo- people doing podcasts, people operating as investigative union units couldn't benefit from some form of uh, incentive or investment. Mm. I mean, it, 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 you know, the reality is that uh, investigative journalism is extremely expensive and it's no coincidence that some of the best uh, investigative journalism is done by freelancers because commercial organisations are not prepared to allow the time and the space needed for investigative journalism. So there are models around you know, the establishment of trusts, the, you know, the, uh, the idea of some kind of incentives and there is of course within that a fear which some people have said well if the state is providing um, Supports does that mean that it's any any uh, that you're some way compromised? I don't believe, for instance, that prime time investigates is compromised by virtue of coming under the um, the uh, the funding of the of of the license fee. Well, but let me play devil's advocate here because um, having, I mean, I've worked for RT numerous times over the years, um, but in general, state broadcasters, the world over. Um, the argument would be that it's not what they investigate, it's what they don't investigate. And it's that they may do a fine job of, of investigating um, things that they consider worth investigating, but that they make decisions that are political decisions a lot of the time about what they don't investigate. And whereas it's very obvious looking at a commercial media organisation and you can see that they're dependent 100% on advertising and then you say, well, state broadcasters are different well there is some of them have an advertising dependency and and but the license fee like the irish license fee hasn't gone up in donkeys yeah so the rt can't step out of line and annoy the politicians because then they won't get you know so their hands are tied there as well so no like the real test to me again i've said this a hundred times you see business programs and business columns in all the major media organisations. There's no workers' columns. Mm-hmm. There's no worker programmes. There's no trade union programmes. That, to me, says a lot. Yeah. Well, I think there, there are a few issues there. First of all, n- not, I think, primetime does uh, annoy politicians in fact, on a regular basis. But if you were to accept your thesis that they don't, it hasn't done them very good, much good. They, don't, they annoy the individual politicians, yes. sure, absolutely. But they don't rock the political boat. Well, not if, if you were to accept that, what I would say is that not rocking the boat hasn't worked very well if you were to accept that, because it certainly hasn't got them a licence fee increase. No. And, and there is a reality, and that is that politicians expect and make a number of demands of the public service broadcaster mm. but don't have the courage to say that if you want quality broadcasting and it's not all investigative journalism sure. if you want quality broadcasting then you must be able to pay for it and that includes uh, arts coverage it includes sports it includes all of the regional coverage all of the elements that make up the jigsaw mm. that is public mm. service broadcasting uh, I agree with you on the issue of the definition of business I mean I have repeatedly and I'm a member of the executive of the Irish Congress of Trade Unions we have repeatedly met this point and I've met it to a number of directors general of RTE over the years that 
so occasionally RT have had guest presenters of the business on a Saturday morning um, and I would have thought for instance that David Begg would be a more than capable person to Who present is? that David Begg is a former General Secretary of Congress uh, or Patricia with, with great King, business knowledge or yeah. Patricia, you know, Patricia King the current General Secretary of Congress has yeah, a very yeah. no-nonsense approach there's nothing that Patricia King doesn't know about apprenticeships for instance yeah. but you will never hear her being interviewed on the business of apprenticeships. Uh, You'll never hear her fronting the program yeah, either. No. And, and uh, so there is that narrow definition mm. of business. That's a cultural issue. I mean, the whole issue of the, the, the voice of workers and how, it, how they come to be heard uh, is, is, is something which is uh, not new, unique to Ireland. But there is always, I mean, trade unions are fine for particular niche subjects. But, for instance, tomorrow in Offaly, uh, where I'm originally from, Congress are doing a really good seminar on um, the, the future of Bordenmona in the context of uh, just transition, or what's called just transition, which is really a, a now becoming a fancy word for climate change. Uh, and what's the phrase again? Uh, just transition. Just transition. And, as, and, and the phrase, as in rightful transition. Just yes, tra- as in social justice, yeah, as yeah. in meaning that as we move to examine issues around carbon. Mm. and carbon oh, footprint that, that there has to be that you can't expect local communities to pay the price for uh, meeting our, our, our sustainable energy goals yeah. but Congress is to the fore in relation to that and working very much with local communities as to see well what are the alternatives but I guarantee you that there won't be um, you know there, that won't be headline news tomorrow but yet at a very local level uh, Congress are doing that and the reason trade unions are doing it is because by definition it's not just about paying your union dues it's also about worrying about the jobs for your families for your communi- mm. communities the impact on the, the pubs the towns the villages the sure. yeah, yeah. Uh, there is a very narrow view where we know O'Casey um, talked about Jim Larkin that he had a, a view that he was a man who would put a loaf of bread on the table and a, va- a flower in a vase there is a very narrow view of what trade unions uh, operate on in Ireland and I mean in the context of the NUJ journalists are frequently afraid of being political or being seen to be political and that's particularly true of uh, public service journalists because obviously you have to report on politicians as well mm. but that doesn't stop us as a union standing up for values mm. okay um you've already mentioned it and uh, newsrooms uh not just national ones but uh, local ones suffering um many closing um yes where, where, is there is there a future is there is there a still a future for print I think there is a, a future for journalism. Mm. I'm not so sure that there is a long-term sustainable future for all print titles. Uh, I'm very aware of the fact that with the arrival of um, television, people said that cinema was going That's to right. go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with the arrival of uh, cinema, people had said that uh, tele- Theatre was go. going to go. Yeah, Theatre yeah, yeah, was yeah. going to go. VHS was going uh, to kill television. Yeah, 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 and and you know, but how long is it since we've had talked about the death of vinyl? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and now vinyl <laughs> has made this incredible comeback. Nostalgia <laughs> uh, so, is a great thing. So, so I think that there will all. I have a belief that there will be uh, a preference for uh, what I call 
the Deadwood edition that there will always there will always be a demand for a certain amount of print, but but the the transition to use the word again uh, to uh, to digital is something which is unstoppable, and there is no point in sounding like the you know the blacksmith bemoaning the introduction of the car. Uh, I think what 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 media organisations have to do is concentrate on delivering the quality product. Uh, in a different way. Mm. I'm concerned re- that we're currently engaged in negotiations with independent news and media where they're talking about eliminating the fo- uh, 50% of the photo- photographers working in the paper, eliminating 50% of the posts because of decreased pagination. And that seems to me to be absurd because the reality is that for a digital edition, uh, greater use of visual images seems to me to enhance the product mm. uh, and so and yet that's a real case of technology being the tail that's wagging the dog because you know back in the day foot photographers were were had bulky cameras and they had a specific job to do now every reporter is a photographer because they have a camera now, uh, whether they're as good uh, or not, I like yes, that's, every, that's every, a moot point. Yes, every, but, every report, but technology yes. has changed. Well, I think the every demand, uh, you yes, know. every every reporter has the capacity to take mm. photographs, which isn't necessarily the same as being exactly. a photographer. No, exactly. And you know, and and I remember recently meeting a, a photographer who was complaining about a new rival who or a new arrival in the town, and said that he has a small camera that is. You know that he carries around everywhere. What should I do to compete with him? And I said, buy a smaller one. <laughs> uh, I mean, the rea- the reality is that uh, you know photography is an art. Uh, independent news and media in the Irish Times, between them, employ some of the best photographers mm. in Europe. There's some amazing Irish photographers, both the work, and there are some amazing freelance photographers. But we have never fully appreciated uh, the role of photography and visual imagery, and I think that that's. Uh, one of the issues which saddens me particularly when you tend to be when you're currently representing workers mm. that that photography is looked into something is that dispensable that, little extra yeah that little extra and equally in terms of investigative journalism that somehow it's you know that it's it's too costly it takes too long you can send someone out for two days three days and they come back and they don't have a story but actually the only way that journalism will survive is if you invest in editorial resources uh if it's something that you can get uh, anywhere, you can get it on your iPhone, you can Google it, then why would people buy mm, a paper? Mm. On the other hand, the distinctive voices which you know, which, which new media organisations engage are the ones which resonate. And going back to Lyra McKee, I think that's why people found her such an exciting and fresh challenge because she actually was uh, someone who was different uh, she, for instance, was asked one time about. I want someone said to her one day, "I want to be a freelance journalist. Where do I start?" And she said, "Become an entrepreneur." Mm. So she knew, mm. and she was engaged. She was about to be engaged in discussions with Netflix in relation yeah. to uh, film rights oh, wow. for a book. So she was ahead of the curve, and in many respects, that's exactly what what journalists now have to be. What's your own journalism background? How did you get to be? Secretary of the NUJ? Uh, I started, I, I studied communications in the College of Commerce in Red Mines under uh, the directorship of Leela Doolan. Uh, that wasn't yesterday or the day not, before. No, <laughs> uh, and that's 40 years ago. Uh, and that was the first class of the communications oh, course. Wow. Okay. Uh, and there were 15 of us. Uh, and the graduates of that course include people like um, Brian Dobson and Casson. 
um, Ned O'Hanlon who worked with, with Zoo TV I know uh, Ned yeah, 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 people yeah. like that uh, I was one of the few people who went into print journalism uh, I so worked in go? the Tullamore Tribune in, in Tullamore and Promopoly uh, I worked there each summer during the uh, college period so by the time I had left college I was already had a grounding in regional newspapers and that was quite useful because it gave me an, an, an interest and expertise in local government, in health, in education. Mm. You do get to know a lot about society when you're covering the district court, when you're covering the BEC, Vocational Education Committee or the Health Committee, um, and also when you just community events. Uh, I then moved to Roscommon. I was editor of the Roscommon Champion for three years. And I was 28. Was when are we talking about? Uh, I was, uh, well, I, I was, I'm now 58 and I was 28 then, so you can do the maths. Do the maths. So Someone was, else do the maths. So Come back to us with a I year was actually, on that. So I was editor of the Roscommon Champion for three years. And then uh, I moved from there to the Irish Independent and I was a, a sub-editor on the news desk there for 10 years. And while I enjoyed production journalism and I learned skills, of mm. particularly the precision of writing and headline writing and that, uh, I did miss the interaction with individuals. I mean, it's night work. Someone described, ah, yeah, yeah. Someone described uh, <coughs> sub-editors as gentlemen, and of course they were gentlemen, who destroyed other men's work <laughs> and then went home in the dark. So I had always been involved in the NUJ, yeah. and when Patsy Dunn, uh, when she stepped down as Irish organiser, I applied for him and got the job. And then when Owen Renane um, was appointed, uh, he was Irish Secretary. When Owen left, I took over uh, okay. as Irish Secretary. And I'm also now, which wasn't always the case, I'm the number two within the wider union, so I'm the Assistant General Secretary, and I have uh, acted as General Secretary in the UK uh, in the absence of the General Secretary when she went on maternity leave. And that's only two years ago, and that was the first time ever that a General Secretary of any union in the UK or Ireland went on maternity leave. Because there have been so few women, yes, women course, at yeah. the head of it. I was asked on that occasion by uh, someone only half tongue in cheek, "How long are we going to be ruled from era?" <laughs> and uh, <laughs> my, my, my response, my response was eight hundred years. <laughs> yeah. So you are coming to, you have come to the NUJ with a wealth of hands-on experience in the media you're not like someone who's come up through the union ranks no 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 and and i i mean i would have during when i was in college i did a, a placement albeit a brief placement in the newsroom in rte and at that stage they had mm. hired a new intake of apprentices and like all employers who have you know students they don't know what to do with so they shoved me in on a training course so i actually had the benefit of doing the same training course for a couple of weeks as the new intake, which included people like Joe O'Brien, Charlie Bird, mm. Fergus O'Reilly, mm. um, really good people, Liam Cahill, Yvonne Murphy, who went on to become a judge. So I actually had the benefit of that. So I, I actually, and that has been valuable because I, I know how the print industry works, having worked there, but I've also got to know RTE over the years. Um, and I suppose the other one is because of having been a journalist, I have developed that network of contacts within de departments, within the political system, which is important in the context of political lobbying. Mm. It was important, for instance, it was the NUJ, I think, primarily who can claim credit for um, the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, and when the Freedom of Information Act was pulled apart by Charlie McCreevy and Tom Parlin, Peter Paul and Progressive Democrats at the time, we led the campaign for the restoration of that. Uh, equally, we led the 
campaign in, to, to stop the privacy law which MacDowell had been proposing reluctantly because he was the Attorney General but uh, it was really a Fianna Fáil uh, invention through Dermot O'Hearn. We were also uh, involved in lobbying for new legislation giving freelancers the right to representation. So as a trade union official some of the skills and that I have learned as a reporter have probably benefited, have, have stood me in good stead. And you mentioned freedom of information there, and that recently has, there was a court case where uh, have you guys now got to go back to the drawing board on freedom of information? Well, there is that possibility, but in fact, the information of, uh, commissioner himself is lodging an appeal to the Supreme Court. What was the court uh, case? And, Just and fill us the, in on the, the detail. The, 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 the detail, um, uh, well, the, it's a complicated case, but currently uh, the assumption, or up until now, the assumption has been that the, the purpose of a request is not, doesn't matter, uh, and that the use to which you put the information doesn't matter. That's now, that's now called into question. Uh, and therefore, from our point of view, you know, information is a right, access is a right, and you don't have to explain why, why you're you using want it. it. Yeah, yeah. And the yeah, presumption yeah. is one of access, not one of refusal. That presumption is now changed by the Supreme Court okay. case. Okay, we'll keep an eye out on that one. Um, um, your experience has all been in, your work experience has all been in what many people might call traditional media. Mm-hmm. Um, has your own personal media consumption allowed you to keep up with the changing face so for instance what is your daily media consumption well i i would uh, i'm an inveterate user of twitter and i would follow uh, well i would read a huge amount of people on twitter there are people who i read but don't follow because i don't want them following me <laughs> uh, and 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 people you could that, just and, mute and, them or block and, them and, and yeah and i do that with some people okay. uh, but i do actually I follow cool. i i do i i do follow twitter i do follow uh, facebook uh, i do tend to read online editions of newspapers but i still bizarrely read the irish times online and buy it as well okay uh, i i like the old-fashioned practice of sitting down and reading you a like newspaper, getting ink on your fingers particularly yeah. at weekends okay but, but i do uh, and i also i mean my first love is radio and and my early news would be uh, Radio 4 mm. uh, would be Morning Ireland uh, I do tend to listen to radio more than look at news I find that radio uh, is uh, less distracting that you can concentrate on the content rather than the visual images mm. uh, but uh, and I, I would tend to um, I would tend to read a lot of news uh, relating to co- politics current affairs uh, social news the one that I find social media particularly useful for is foreign news. Okay. Uh, uh, but I think what the difficulty there is, you have to be very careful about your source, uh, and you know, and it's very comfortable in Ireland. You know, particularly in my case, I know who the authors are. I know the agenda, or if there is an agenda, when you're reading foreign news, uh, you have to be more careful. I want to come back to that whole issue of trust in journalism in a minute. Um, but before that, let me just finish off. You said you listen to a lot of radio. Uh, do you listen to podcasts? Do you listen to your radio on your transistor in the car? Or do you stream uh, radio? 
Well, your presumption is that I have a car. I'm, <laughs> I don't actually. Neither do I. There we uh, go. I don't drive. Uh, I and I'm a, a firm believer in public public, in okay. public transport. Uh, so I would tend to to listen to radio while walking. Uh, I listen to some podcasts, but not a lot. Uh, You'll be I, listening to uh, the off message yeah. ones from here on. In I will. <laughs> uh, no, I do. I do listen. I, I do tend to turn on the radio very early in the morning. Okay, so I you would have the tranny on at home. Oh, yeah. Would you listen then on your phone to the radio as you're walking into yes, work? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, okay. and and I would uh, uh, at weekends. Uh, I contribute to occasionally to Sunday Miscellany and I, I love Sunday Miscellany mm, and my on idea one, yeah. my on RT Radio One and my ideal Sunday morning is to to listen to to that and then to lyric while walking the dog. I mean that's okay. yeah so radio is very much part of my leisure as well. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on so to that issue of trust in journalism. Um it is possibly at this stage with the uh, sometimes exaggerated and sometimes true accusations of fake news. Mm-hmm. Trust in journalism in a lot of surveys is at an all-time low. Um, how does one, with wearing your NUJ cap, how does one rectify that? Yeah, I, I don't like the term fake news, and it has become a lazy shorthand mm. yeah. fake, ha- fake has, news yeah. fake new- news now is so any anything that someone says that you don't agree with yes and it has become the the political correctness of today everything is you know the phrase there's nothing wrong with being politically correct there is nothing wrong with uh, attempting to say things in a way that doesn't offend thinking something now, through before uh, yeah. it well, leaves your brain and comes out your mouth uh, I agree. and now and now uh, oh you know, if, if no matter what you're asked to do, if you're you know if you're asked to 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 not walk out in front of traffic while the traffic is oncoming, it's described as being ah he's been too PC. Yeah, 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 and yeah. in the same way, fake news is is gaining that kind of currency sure. as well. But even at without the, but, that, but, but at there the is same time, uh, there there is there is a trust issue. Um, and I think the only way that the media can win that trust is by investing in editorial resources in real journalism Mm. Uh, and uh, the issue is there is far too much focus on opinion rather than news there's far too much focus and I think you know the the way in which media organisations can gain, gain trust, particularly in the context of Ireland, is to say just because someone has a Twitter handle or just because someone uh, writes a lot doesn't actually mean that they have something worthwhile to say. And by adhering to an ethical code, by adhering to standards and, and by engaging with your listeners and saying this is the standard that we expect mm. uh, and this is how we check our news. Mm. Uh, that's the only way in which that you can that you can earn trust. I mean, trust is not something that is an automatic entitlement. Uh, so you have to be able to stand on your record. And for instance, one of the reasons why journalists within independent news and media are so upset by the the current controversies around surveillance is that that damages trust between hard-working journalists and their sources, mm, for instance. Mm. Uh, so you can have an individual journalist who's perfectly trustworthy, in that case, being betrayed by their organisation. So the issue of... That's the accusation, uh, isn't it? That, uh, well, yeah. it's more than an accusation because they... they because it hasn't been denied it hasn't been denied that it hasn't been denied that there was surveillance Uh, and the the issues before the 
investigation are who ordered it, why it happened. Mm. There isn't a denial that it happened. Uh, but for a journalist, for instance, in independent news and media, even if your own phone wasn't uh, being rec- recorded or under surveillance, the relationship with your your sources is compromised. In terms of the you know the the wider issues, for instance, in many organisations, I mean, you know, those who talk about fake news. Uh, sometimes talk about RTE as being compromised by, by virtue of the licence fee. So then they extend that and they say, therefore, it's it's government controlled. I have never seen RTE controlling uh, news in RTE. I don't believe that RTE is controlled by the Minister for the Communications of sure. the day. No more than, no more, no more than uh, Tony O'Reilly or indeed Dennis O'Brien uh, pick up the phone to say this is what but should the, be in they the don't paper. have to well, pick they don't up have the phone to. because yeah. one doesn't get a job i know when i'm in there uh, yeah. where whatever organization i'm working for and i'm a freelancer yeah. I, I you know i have to go out and earn the bob yeah. um it's because they know i'm a safe pair of hands yeah so they don't have to yeah. pick up the phone no they don't and you don't get the job in the first yeah. place yeah and, and if I you're think, a raving and, lunatic marxist left-wing and, 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 and i think the issue there is the and in particular where in in the print media sector in particular of course boards appoint editors so they you know appoint, appoint editors in some cases of course in their own image and likeness or in the perceived yes. image and likeness yes yes yes, yes, yes. Um, so, so, the, so one of the kind of issues that, uh, you know, I think we, you always have to be alert for, and we would always say, is the separation of powers between editors and the commercial side of the mm. house. And that is a constant tussle, and it will always be a constant tussle. Sure. Uh, and it was, for instance, I remember at the height of, you know, the con- when the Irish Times seemed to be in trouble at the turn of uh, the last century, uh, they, uh, one of the big issues was the high salary of the editor and you had journalists controlling bitter, complaining bitterly usually non-Irish Times sorry, about the, the, the editor of the Irish Times earning so much money the editor of the Irish Times was earning the same as the managing director for a very good reason both were directors of the company and I remember Geraldine Kennedy at the time saying if you want to pay the managing director less I will take the same as the managing director <laughs> but the, the yeah. reason for that was it was not a financial thing but yeah. the reason for that was within the Irish Times at that time, there was a belief that both the editor and the uh, managing director should be on the board and that, there sh- that they should have an equivalent standing. And that was, an import- that was important symbolically. And, you know, Douglas Gageby uh, probably was the one who, who uh, insisted on that. Not that he wasn't commercially minded, but he he realised that if you that being a trust meant something, mm. uh, and I yeah, think their ownership model is very different, and their ownership yeah. model is yeah. very different. Uh, it doesn't mean that the Irish Times is by any way perfect, in many means perfect, but the ownership model of the Guardian in the UK and of the Irish Times is interesting. There is no reason why a commercial organisation such as INM. Uh, or some of the, the regional company groups cannot have sort of editorial standards or editorial contracts which which are explicitly guarantee editorial independence. I mean, there are other European countries where there are effectively editorial boards. The Washington Post, for instance, is also very good on that whole issue of uh, editorial independence. And what is interesting and is... And that's even with Jeff Bezos after taking uh, it over. Yes. And what's Mr. Amazon, yeah. And what's interesting in relation to both the Washington Post and the New York Times is that 
while people talk about fake news in the UK, their response to that accusation, in fact, is to invest in editorial resources. Speaking of investing, um, becoming a member of the NUJ, uh, it costs money. Um, how is membership? How has it fluctuated, uh, certainly since, I suppose, the recession of 08 09? And what advice... I saw a leaflet when I was yeah. sitting waiting for you, the 10 reasons to join the NUJ. Yeah. What are they? Why should someone invest their hard-earned cash if they are a freelance or a member of a media organisation? Well, I think there are a few a few issues I would say. Yes, me- membership is in, pl- is in decline because employment, full-time employment within the sector is in decline. Uh, ironically, that has its own challenges because we've never been busier. Um, mm, so you okay. have a decline, a decline uh, brought about by a crisis in the industry, which means you've less uh, money to do the things you need to do. Yes, that that is a problem. But we also have, you know, they, they, we, there are two full time officials, but we still have uh, a large number of lay members who work within the workplace on behalf of the members. Uh, at a minimum. Uh, trade union membership is an insurance policy and one of the most infuriating things that we find is people coming to us looking for advice and say well I'm not a member or I, I'm a lapsed member uh, we're not like the Catholic Church we don't claim people forever you do have to continue paying in order to benefit now I never turn anyone away but I, there is a limit to how much service you can give to someone who is not a, a current member sure. uh, I would say maintain your membership but don't just pay a fee Get involved in your branch. Become involved. Use the union as a network. I mean, the the, the Dublin Freelance Branch has an event twice a year, the Freelance That's Forum, right. which is u- hugely beneficial spoken in it, yeah. terms of actually meeting people, mm. in terms of getting to know what's going on. In the workplace, there's obviously the issue of representation, uh, the issue of advice, the issue and the advice may be on copyright, it may be on fees, it may be on, uh, you know, Potentially, we don't provide a formal uh, clinic in terms of where there are jobs going, but occasionally we will know if there's work going and we will alert people to that. There's also, of course, the commitment of you know securing the press card and being able to say, I adhere to the NUJ Code of Conduct. Mm. Uh, and when you talk about trust, the difference between uh, being a working journalist and someone who uh, broadcasts late at night on Twitter uh, is actually adhering to a code of conduct and accepting basic decent standards. Seamus Dooley, Irish Secretary of the NUJ. Yep. Thank you very much. Thank Thank you you very much. So thanks again to Seamus Dooley for our off-message podcast number 11 chat. If you fancy investigating previous episodes, they're all available for streaming or downloading at SoundCloud, Google and Apple Podcasts and all the other usual suspects. You can subscribe to all future Media Savvy podcasts there or if you sign up via the subscription form on any off-message post over at patomahony.ie, you'll also get ahead-of-the-pack notices of equally riveting off-message blog posts. And, of course, you can follow and like Off Message on Twitter and Facebook at Off Message one As usual, all shares and shout-outs greatly appreciated. Till the next time, I'm Pat O'Mahony, this is Off Message, and thank you for listening. <laughs>